All right, you guys can turn to the book of Genesis, actually. Genesis 3 is where we're going to start this morning. We will get to James, but that's not where we're going to start. Genesis 3. When I was here at A&M, I lived in Treehouse Village Apartments. I assume they're still there over by the railroad tracks. Uh, I lived in Treehouse Village with three of my best friends, and we lived right across the hall from four girls who were friends of ours. So it was a, a perfect environment for college pranks. So we're playing pranks on each other all the time. Um, and the best prank that we guys ever pulled on the girls is we convinced them that the apartment complex was going to require them and them alone to park their cars on the far other end of the complex. So here's how we did it. We, um, we typed up this letter and put it on apartment complex letterhead. And this was before the days of Photoshop. So like it really looked good. It, it looked convincing. And we wrote in this letter that because of, of overcrowding, they had to choose a few apartments by random lot to park in the remote lot. Way out in the boonies. It was all just boonies out there back in my day. Um, and so we, we wrote this letter and we put it in the girls' mailbox that day and, and they opened it that night and they got furious. Oh my gosh, they were so angry. This letter, it was, it was phrased really nice, but it told them, if you don't move tonight, we'll tow you in the morning. And so the girls get really angry and they come to us just with red faces, just furious. What should we do? And, and they talk about how they're going to go launch a protest in the morning against the management company. Um, and we guys, we had just enough sense to realize, okay, this is going to get out of hand real quick. <laughs> this is going bad. So uh, we fessed up. Ha ha, look at this joke that we played on you. Um, and surprisingly, they didn't laugh. They didn't, they didn't see this prank as, as funny. They were really angry at us for a long time after that because we had manipulated them. Our deception had had such a powerful effect upon their emotions, and if we would not have fessed up, they would have done something that they would have really regretted. I don't think management would have been happy with them launching a protest in the morning. Deception can have an incredibly powerful impact on us. When we believe a lie, that lie can lead us to think and say and do things that are harmful to us. About 2,500 years ago, a great military general in China named Sun Tzu uh, wrote a book called The Art of War. And after years of, of experiencing warfare, he concluded all warfare is based on deception. Hence, when able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must seem inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we are far away. When far away, we must make him believe we are near. Hold out baits to entice the enemy. Feign disorder and crush him. He recognized the most powerful weapon an army has is deception. But Sun Tzu wasn't the first to figure that out. Actually, the idea of using deception as a weapon goes back long before him, all the way back to the dawn of human history in the Garden of Eden. You'll recall in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates. And at the pinnacle of his creation, he makes man and woman, Adam and Eve, in his image, crowned with his glory. And everything that God has made is very good. But then in Genesis 3, God's enemy shows up in the garden. Satan comes, and, and Satan hates God. Satan wants to destroy all the good that God has made, and so Satan starts at the top. He goes after Adam and Eve. Look with me, starting chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from the tree of the garden. 
The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan attacks Adam and Eve. And notice, he he doesn't pull out the flaming sword. He doesn't come after them with an army of terrifying demons. That's what Hollywood Satan would do, right? That's what Satan does in the movies. But um, actually, the real Satan is far more dangerous than the Hollywood Satan. Because if he would have just pulled out a flaming sword, I think Adam and Eve would have the sense to run away. They would have run to God and everything would have been okay. He comes after them with a weapon far more powerful than a sword. He comes after them with a lie. Eve, Eve, Eve. My naive little Eve. Don't you see? If you eat of that fruit, you will not die. Eve, you will be like God. You will be as powerful as God, as wise as God. The only reason that God told you not to eat it is because God likes being in charge. He likes being the guy who gets to call the shots. He doesn't want competition from you. Eve, God's not looking out for you. He's looking out for himself. He's holding out on you, Eve. He's not being good to you, Eve. You know how the story ends. The lie works. Eve takes the bait. She buys into this suspicion that that maybe God isn't being good to me after all. I mean, look at that fruit. It's, It's really good looking fruit. That's beautiful fruit. If there's any fruit in the world that could make you wise, it would be that fruit right there. And it looks so good. It looks so beautiful. How could a loving God withhold something so good from me? Maybe God is holding out on me. Maybe God doesn't want what's best for me. Yeah, I think you're right. Serpent, get out of the way. I'm taking the fruit. And Eve plunges the human race into sin. And since that time, all of the sin and evil that plagues the human race can be traced back to that one simple lie. Eve, God is not good. Eve, God is holding out on you. That lie will prove the downfall of person after person throughout Scripture. You look at Abraham uh, betraying his wife when he was traveling in the nation of Egypt because he didn't believe that God would be good to him. You look at Israel in the wilderness, turning away from God to worship an idol because they didn't believe that Yahweh would be good to them. You look at Saul sacrificing animals in direct disobedience to God's command. Why? Because he didn't believe that God would be good to him. Over and over again, God's people buy into the lie that God will not be good to us. And that lie excuses sin. That lie becomes an excuse for sin. If God is not going to be good to me, then just like Eve, I'm going to be good to me. I'm going to take what's mine. I'm going to look out for myself if God's not going to look out for me. When you see that pattern over and over again throughout Scripture and and in our own lives, it leads to the conclusion that the root of most sin is the suspicion that God is not good. Often the reason that we give in to sin, more often than not, is because we do not at the core of our being believe that God is good to us. We don't believe that we can trust him to meet all of our needs. We don't believe that he can take care of everything that we need. And so just like Eve, we reach out and take care of ourselves. We give in to sin because we buy into the suspicion that God is not good to us. 
James is going to confront that sin this morning. That's what our passage is all about. So turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Now, when we look over this passage this morning in James 1, um, it's going to look a little bit disconnected. It looks like James is kind of scattered. That's one of the challenges with James. If you've read the book, you'll notice he kind of goes all over the place. It's hard to see the big idea, but the big idea of our passage this morning, verses 16 through 20, is that James is going to confront and refute this lie about the goodness of God. That's his big idea this morning. Passage starts with a warning. Look at verse 16. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. It's the first thing that James focuses on. He wants us to beware of deception. He is concerned that his audience is being misled away from the truth. He is concerned that they are buying into a lie. Now, interestingly, he does not tell us where that deception comes from. Is it from Satan? Is it from the world? Is it from sin living inside of us? Well, I'll take your pick. We're prone to deception from all three sources. It doesn't matter where the deception is coming from. The point is we are prone to be deceived. And in particular, the particular lie that James is looking at this morning is that God is not good to me. That's the lie that the whole passage is focused on. The suspicion that God cannot be trusted, that God is not good to me. And this lie often arises, this, this false suspicion arises in our hearts when life is hard. That's when we're most prone to buy into this lie, when life is difficult. Remember the context of James, what we've studied so far in James chapter 1. His audience was having a hard time. His audience was, was suffering because of trials. Two in particular, they were being persecuted and they were poor. They were living in poverty. Life was really difficult for them. And in the midst of that suffering, they begin to ask some, some difficult questions. God, do you still care about me? God, are, are you watching out for me? God, are, are you being good to me? Well, as they ask those questions in the midst of their suffering, it raises doubts. Sure doesn't look like God is being good to me. I'm poor. I'm being persecuted. I'm an outcast. I have no friends. I'm ridiculed by society. Life is not working for me. They begin to give into that doubt that maybe God is not good to me. Maybe God is not watching out for me. And that suspicion, that lie, leads them to sin. If God doesn't care about me, then I'm going to care about me. If God's not going to do what's good for me, then I'm going to take care of myself. And that's exactly what his audience has begun to do. They have bought into the lie that God is not good to them, and so in sin they have reached out to, to take what is theirs, to defend their rights, to watch out for themselves. Look with me at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. We'll see what his audience is doing because of this lie that they bought into, that God is not good. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures." James' audience has, has bought into this lie that God is not good to them. And so in sin, they have begun to take care of themselves. I will reach out and I will do whatever is necessary to get what I need, to take care of my desires, to defend my rights, because God doesn't seem to care about me, so I'll care about me. 
their distrust in God, their disbelief that God is good to them has become an excuse for all manner of sin in their lives. That's why this lie is so dangerous. When we doubt the goodness of God, it becomes an excuse for all kinds of sin in our lives. Think about that for a minute. Think about how this doubt, this disbelief in the goodness of God leads to sin. Let me give you a couple examples. Why do married people have affairs? Why do they cheat on their spouse? Because they begin to doubt that God is good. God gave me this spouse, but is this spouse really good for me? My husband, my wife, man, they're a jerk to me. They are awful to me all the time. I need something better than this, God. Why are you holding out on me, God? Why have you given me a spouse who doesn't care about me? If you don't care about me, if you're not going to meet my legitimate needs, then I'm going to look to meet my needs elsewhere. Adultery always comes because someone doubts the goodness of God. Another example, why do students cheat on a test? Because they doubt the goodness of God. God, I need that A. That A is required for me to get into grad school, and grad school is good. That is what is good for me. God, I I can't trust you anymore. You gave me this incredibly unreasonable professor who's threatening to ruin everything. All of my hopes and dreams are going to destroy them. God, I can't trust you to work things out. So I'm going to take care of it myself. I'm going to do what's required to make sure that my life is good. We give in to sin because we doubt the goodness of God. We do not trust God to take care of us. We do not trust God to do what is good for us. James knows, he understands that that so much sin that we deal with flows out of this suspicion that God is not good. And so he's going to tackle that lie head on. That's where the passage goes next. He is going to refute this idea that God is not good to you. James is going to challenge us to believe truth about God. Look with me. Let's read, starting in verse 17. Let's actually just read verse 17 for the moment. Verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In that verse, James says two things about God, two truths about God's goodness. The first thing he teaches us is that everything good comes from God. Everything good comes from God. He actually repeats himself for the sake of emphasis. Literally in Greek, he says, every good giving and every perfect gift comes from above. Everything that is good in your life originates with God. Now, to understand that, you've got to define the key word. What is good? What does the Bible mean by a good thing? What, what is it if something is good in your life? What the Bible means by good, what is good is that which is beneficial to you. When the Bible proclaims that God gives you what is good, it means that he gives you what is helpful to you, what is good for you, to use the English vernacular. What it doesn't mean is that God gives you what will make you happy. Good doesn't mean that which will make you happy. Good doesn't mean that which is pleasurable. Good doesn't mean that which you want. God doesn't promise to give you what you want. He promises to give you what's good for you. Often what we want is is not the same thing as what we need. And God loves you so much, he's always going to give you what you need. That's what it means when it says that God is good to you. He always gives you exactly what is the most good for you, the most beneficial for you. Sometimes that thing will be hard. 
Sometimes it will not be pleasurable, but God loves you so much he will still give it to you because it is the best thing for you. That's what we mean when we say God is good to us. He always gives us that which is the most beneficial, the most helpful, the best thing for us. God is always good to us. Now, if you think about it for a moment, that's a a pretty bold statement to say that God is the source of everything good in your life. Everything that is beneficial in your life comes from God. That's a bold statement. Let's think about that for a moment. My wife is good. My wife does a lot of really good things for me. But wait a minute, who gave me my wife? Who created my wife? Who redeemed my wife and filled her with his spirit so that she could be a blessing to me? Who softened my wife's heart and temporarily blinded her eyes so that she would choose me? Well, God did all of that. All of the good that comes to me through Julie is ultimately from God. Or what about, um, what about my house? My house is a blessing to me. My house protects me from inclement weather. My house is comfortable. It's a blessing to me and my family. God didn't build my house. Men and women who were skilled built my house. But who created them? Who gave them the skills to build a house? Who made trees that make lumber that make my house? Who made people creative to invent nice things like air conditioning? And who gave me the money to buy the house in the first place? God. All of those things come from God. Everything good in my life, every good possession, every good thing I eat, every good thing I enjoy, all of it originates from God. He is the one and only source of everything good and beneficial in the universe. That's true both for us who are believers and for unbelievers. Acts 14, 17, Paul says he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God is the source of good to all people. Everything good that human beings enjoy comes from God. He's the source of all that is good. That's the first truth that James wants us to understand. The second truth that he wants us to understand about God's goodness is that God is always good to us. At all times, without exception, God is always good to you. That's what James is saying in the second part of verse 17. Look again at that. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Kind of odd language here. Father of lights. Lights is talking about the sun and moon and stars. So James is calling God creator of all of the celestial bodies. Now, those celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, they move around a lot, don't they? They're always moving. And because they're always moving, they're creating shadows here on earth that are always moving and shifting around, constant state of change. James says, compared to that, God is absolutely fixed. He's contrasting God to the planets and stars and saying, compared to them, God is always fixed. He is always stationary. God does not change like those things do. God does not move like those things do. God is a constant source of goodness in your life. Not one way one day and a different way a different day. God is always unchangeably good to you. Similar point is made in Malachi 3.6, very significant passage in the Old Testament. God says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Kind of a summary statement. I, God, do not change. In my attributes, in my character, in my commitments, I do not change. I'm not one way on Tuesday and another way on Wednesday. 
I am always exactly the same. I am unchangeable. And since God is absolutely, eternally unchangeable, so is his goodness. His goodness to you is unchanging. He is as good to you on Tuesday as he will be on Wednesday. He is as good to you this year as he will be next year. And here's a really amazing one to think about. God is as good to you today as he will be when you're in heaven. You always think about heaven as, okay, that's the place where I'll go and I'll enjoy all of God's goodness. Yeah, heaven's going to be nice, but it's not like God's going to be more good to you then than he is now. Because that would mean that God's goodness could be improved. It can't. It's already perfect. God is infinitely, perfectly good to us already, so his goodness isn't going to grow. He is always infinitely good to us. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, for eternity. God is always immutably, infinitely good to us. That leads Paul to say this in Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Those who are called according to his purpose. Paul's talking about believers. And he's saying that for believers, we know that God causes what? All things, not most things, not some things, not things on Tuesday, but not on Wednesday. No, all things work together for good. God is moving absolutely everything in your life without exception. The things that look good, the things that look bad. All of it he is bringing and moving and working for your good, for your benefit. God is always unchangeably forever working everything for good in your life. David spoke about a similar thing. And my favorite passage in the Old Testament, Psalm 23, many of you have it memorized. You may not have really thought and studied, though, about some of the words that you have memorized. Let me show them to you and, and help you see what David is really saying in Psalm 23. We'll start with the last verse, verse 26. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Fun verse to memorize, um, but the English translation there, I think, is awful. Follow me. It's such a weak word. In Hebrew, it's a word from the animal kingdom. It's it's a word that was used to describe how a hunter chases down its prey. This is a wolf chasing down a sheep. God's point is that his goodness and loving kindness is hunting you. It is chasing you. It is running after you every moment of every day of your life. God's goodness is constantly pursuing you. And that leads us to ask, why God? Why would you choose to love us so much? Why would you choose to run us down with good? To give us only that which is good every moment of every day of our lives. It's not like we deserve it. We're not very deserving people of your goodness. We've not been very good to you. So why are you so good to us? David answers that question earlier in the psalm. Verses two and three. This is my own translation of it. He makes me able to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my life. He leads me down good paths for the sake of his name. God leads us down good or beneficial paths, right paths. Why? For the sake of his name. That's just a, uh, an old way of saying in, in, in modern English, we would say for the sake of his reputation. That's what David means. God leads you towards good for the sake of his reputation. What David is saying is the reason that God gives you good every day of your life is because he has staked his reputation as God on your good. 
It's an incredible thing to think about. In front of the entire watching universe, all the angels, all the demons, God has staked his reputation as God, as ruler, upon your good. What that means is that God does not give you good because of you. Because of something you do or something you merit, something you earn. That has nothing to do with it. You are not in the equation. The reason that God gives you good is because of him. Because of his commitment to his reputation. Because of his free choice to stake his reputation, his name on your good. That is so powerful to me. This is one of the the Psalms that I have memorized that I quote to myself more often than any other. Because that is just so shocking to me to think about this reality that the creator of heaven and earth has staked his reputation on me, on good for me. I can absolutely count on God to give me nothing but good all the days of my life because he staked his reputation on it. It's not about me. It's about him. It's about his free choice out of grace, out of love to stake his reputation as God on my good. So God will always be infinitely, perfectly good to you. Everything that he allows you to experience in life, everything without exception will be for your good, for your benefit. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, and for eternity. God is unchangeably good to us. And finally, James illustrates that. He shows us that goodness in action by taking us back to the past. He shows us or proves to us God's goodness by looking at our regeneration in verse 18. Verse 18 is an example of verse 17. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Verse 18 says a lot. (laughs) One little verse, basically James is summarizing all of Romans 1 through 8. For those of you here last year, whole of that is summarized in this one verse. James is saying, when you were born, you were dead. When you were born, you were dead in sin. But out of his own will, by his own free choice, God chose to to regenerate you, to give you birth. It's the language of pregnancy. God gave you new birth. He gave you new life through his word. That is his scripture and and particularly the, the focal point of his scripture, the story about Jesus Christ, the gospel. Through the gospel revealed in scripture, That God's own son, Jesus, died for your sins and rose from the dead. God uses that truth to regenerate you, to give you new life. And he does it so that you, as a regenerated person, will be a first fruits out of all of creation. Really odd language he uses there. First fruits was the first and best of the harvest. What James is saying is that our regeneration is just the first step in God making all of the universe right. Similar to what Paul said in Romans 8, for those of you who studied it with us last year. God has regenerated you. He has given you new life as proof that he's going to do the same thing that did the entire universe. God is going to make all things right, and he started with you. So why should we believe that God is being good to us right now? Why should we believe it? Because he's already been infinitely good to us in the past. He's already given us the most valuable thing he possessed, his own beloved son. If he's already given us Jesus, how can he not be good to us today? 
That's what Paul concludes in Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God has already given you Jesus. How will he not give you the rest of the stuff you need? He's already taken you 99.9 yards down the field through Jesus. Do you not think he's gonna take you the rest of the way there? You can count on God being good to you today because he was already infinitely good to you yesterday. He gave you his son so that you could have new life, so that you could live forever with God. That is proof positive that God will always be good to us. In every way, he is always good. Now, how do we apply that truth? How do we take that truth and live it out in our lives? That's what James covers next. In verse 19, he's going to talk to us about how we apply this truth to life. What does it look like to live out of this truth that God is always good to us? Look with me at verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Gives three simple little summary commands here. Be quick to hear. What does he mean by that? Well, it's not the the rate, the speed at which you hear. Quick to hear is just a proverbial way of saying we need to listen well. We need to listen to God and other people well. We need to try to understand what they're saying. We need to reflect on what they're saying. We need to accept what they're saying. We need to seek to understand them. He's talking about listening well. Second command is, is actually similar. Be slow to speak. Again, it's, it's not about the speed at which you speak. He's talking about, are you willing to wait to speak? Are you willing to be quiet and let the other one speak? Are you willing to, to care more about understanding them than making sure they understand you? Are you slow to speak or are you quick to speak? Are you quick to defend your rights? Are you quick to share your preferences? Are you quick to stand up for yourself? He wants us to be slow to speak. And finally, slow to anger. When you are frustrated, when you are disappointed by a situation or a person, are you quick to grow angry about that? Or are you slow to grow angry? Are you quick to defend yourself? Are you quick to fight for your rights? Or are you slow to that? Do you step back and cool down? Or do you step up to defend yourself? What James is doing here in all three of these commands, they're actually not distinct commands. They are all saying the same thing, but just from different angles. What James is saying is that the way that we apply this belief in the goodness of God is by choosing to be patient. That's the idea that ties all three of those things together. When we're interacting with God and with others, are we patient to listen first? Are we patient to to speak carefully, to measure our words? Are we patient with our anger, patient to step back and cool down? He wants us to be patient. That's how you live out this belief in the goodness of God. And it's actually exactly the opposite of what James' audience had done. Remember chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What are they doing? Well, they don't believe that God is good. They don't believe that God has their best interests in mind. And so when they're in conflict with one another, they are quick to step up and defend themselves. They're quick to grow angry. They're quick to fight for their rights and their desires. That's usually how conflict works in relationships. Think about it. Think about a relationship you have with a spouse or a sibling or a roommate. What is the source of conflict in that relationship? Whether you realize it or not, the source of conflict is that we do not believe that God is good. 
We do not trust that God is good to us. So um, there's this thing right here that I want. I want to have it or I want to do it, uh, but you are preventing me from having it or doing it. For one reason or another, maybe a good reason, maybe a bad reason, you're preventing me from having what I want or doing what I want to do. Now, if I believe that God is good to me, then I can let that go. If I trust that God is always good to me, then if I can't have this thing, that's okay. Because I believe that whatever happens with this thing, God is working for my good. So I can relinquish my rights and desires and serve you instead. But if I don't believe that God is good, if I believe that I am the judge of good, if I believe that I am the one who has to get what is good for me, then I can't let this thing go. This is good. I want it. I need it. You are in the way of me getting it. And so I'm going to stand up to you. I'm going to stand up for my rights and desires. That's where conflict comes in all relationships. Do we trust in the goodness of God? If not, we will fight. If so, we will relinquish our rights. James is challenging us. He is calling us to be patient. He is calling us, number one, to believe, to believe that God is good to us, and number two, to apply that belief by choosing patience with one another, by sacrificing our rights and desires, by being humble, by being quiet, by being still, by being people of peace. And the reason that we need to do that is verse 20. James gives us the ultimate reason for why we need to choose patience. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Achieve the righteousness of God. He's not saying that that it earns the righteousness of God or, or that it makes the righteousness of God. What he's saying, God's righteousness here is his justice. It's God making things right. What James is saying is that if you want things to be right in your life, If you want to experience God's justice in your relationships and in your daily life, you won't get it through anger. Anger is not the way you make life right. When someone frustrates you, when someone takes away your rights, when they get in the way of your desires, if you choose anger, you're not going to fix things. It's not going to make things better. Anger does not fix things because it can't. Anger just leads to sin and strife. It doesn't make things right. Now, obviously, we're not talking about righteous anger here. That's not what's in the context. Righteous anger, like Jesus in the temple, he gets angry because people are oppressing the poor. They're keeping the poor from being able to worship God. Jesus gets angry on behalf of those who cannot defend themselves. That's okay. That's not what James is talking about. James is talking about when we get angry over our stuff, over defending our rights and our desires. That's not okay. That's not righteous anger when it's about me. When I give into righteous anger about me, when I try to defend my rights and my desires, it messes things up. It doesn't make them better. I think that's so important for us to understand in our culture at this time. Lately, I feel like we who are Christians, um, when, when we speak the truth and then society rejects us for us, when they ridicule us for it, we're awfully quick to get angry about that. We're awfully quick to stand up and defend our rights. We're awfully quick to launch a protest. We're awfully quick to defend ourselves. I don't think that's what God wants us to do. I don't think God needs us to defend ourselves. I certainly know he doesn't need us to defend him. He's okay. What if when society rejects us? What if when they ridicule us? What if when they take away our rights, when they take away our desires, what if we didn't stand up for ourselves? What if we didn't fight for our rights? 
What if instead we chose just to love, just to be kind, just to respond in grace? We speak truth and love, and when they reject it, we give them more love. We don't launch a lawsuit. We don't fight. We don't put forth a protest. What if we were willing to sacrifice our rights? Are our rights really that important in the bigger scheme of things? Realize Jesus, James, Peter, Paul, none of them had religious liberty. None of them had religious freedom, and that was okay. They didn't fight for it. They didn't protest for it. They just loved. They loved. When people hated them, they loved. When people fought them, they loved. Now, we live in a democracy. We need to participate. We need to vote. We need to speak for what is true. We need to vote for righteous laws. But that doesn't mean that we need to fight. When people hate us, when people come after us, what if instead of standing up for our rights, we just loved? That's what God is calling us to do. Return hatred with love. Return fighting. Return arguing with patience, with humility. That's what Jesus and his disciples did. I am so shocked at how every time they are beaten, every time they are abused, they never stand up for their rights. They just love people in return. That's what God wants us to do. Don't give in to anger. Don't defend yourself. Don't defend God. He doesn't need it. Just love. Be patient. Be humble. That's what God is calling us to do. Anger will never make things right. It will never make life better. What God wants us to do, what James is challenging us to do in this passage this morning is, number one, believe that God is always good to you. That whatever happens in your life, it is for your good because you have a good God. And then two, apply that belief by choosing patience, humility, selflessness. Seek the other person's good, not your good. Sacrifice your rights and your desires. You don't need them. Trust in God to take care of you. If we will do that, then we will be agents in bringing God's righteousness to earth. That's how we make this earth right, is by being patient, by believing that God is good to us, and so out of patience, sacrificing our rights and desires for the good of others. Now let's get practical. Let's end with application. How do we actually apply this? I want to give you two steps. First, I want to ask you, have you received God's goodness? Have you received the gift of God's goodness? God has offered to the human race the greatest gift ever conceived, his own son. Jesus, who who took our sins upon himself, who died in our place and rose from the dead so that we could have eternal life, God offers to the human race eternal life through his son. Have you received that gift? Have you believed that that God's love, that a relationship with God now and forever is yours for free? You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to come to church for it. You don't have to do good things for it. It's yours for free. If you'll just receive the gift of his love through Jesus Christ, have you received God's greatest goodness, eternal life, through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection? If you have, for those of us who have, then step number two, let us reflect on God's goodness this week. I want to challenge you. Um, we covered a lot of ground this morning. Uh, the challenge with all that we've covered, a lot of passages, is that you've looked at it in a brief period of time. You're going to go out and begin to deal with the, the world around you. You're going to forget it. You won't remember it. It won't sink in unless you reflect on it. And so let me challenge you to spend some time this week meditating on, on three of the key passages we've covered this morning. Meditate on James 1, 17 to 18. Meditate on Psalm 23. And meditate on Romans 8, 28 through 39. 
And meditate, just a fancy way of saying, read it a few times. Read it and think about it. Think about what it means. So spend some time meditating on those three passages. And then let me encourage you, after you've spent some time in those passages, ask yourself, do I really believe that God is good? Not just believe in the sense that I could answer a question on the test, but do I really believe it? At the core of my being, do I believe that God is always good to me? Do I believe that he is as good to me today as he will be when I see him in heaven? Do I believe that everything he has allowed in my life is good? Everything, even even that thing, that thing that I hate, that thing that I so badly wish was not part of my life, do I believe that even that is out of God's goodness? That everything without exception that comes into my life is motivated by love, by grace. It is from God and it is good. Do I believe that God is always good to me in every way? Do I really believe it? Ask yourself that and then ask yourself, do I always act like I believe it? Does everything I think and say and do reflect my belief in the goodness of God? Or are there times when I think things or say things or do things that betray a disbelief in the goodness of God? Are there relationships where I'm quick to stand up for my rights and my desires, where I'm quick to defend myself, showing that I don't really trust God to take care of me? Are there situations or circumstances where I get angry and I lash out rather than give in to patience and, and walk in humility? Ask yourself, are there places in my life where my attitudes, my words, and my actions betray a distrust in the goodness of God? Look for those places and then ask God to begin to work on those. To begin to work in those relationships, to begin to work in those situations, to grow your faith, to grow your trust in his goodness. Pray this week, I'd encourage you, reflect on these passages, reflect on these questions, and then every day this week, pray that God would help you to see fresh and new, more deeply than you've ever seen before, how good he is to you. I really believe, if if it is true that the root of most sin is the suspicion that God is not good, then the key to righteousness is the belief that he is If you want to walk in holiness, if you want to walk in obedience, if you want to honor God with your life, the key is learning to believe at the core of your being that he is always good to you in every way. If you can really believe that, if you can really own that truth, it will change your behavior. It will conform you to the likeness of his son. If you will just believe. Let's go to the Lord and pray for his help to believe. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we worship you this morning that you are good. We thank you that you are good to us because you did not have to be. Lord, we are rebels. We sin against you. We do that which is evil, that which is hurtful to others. So often we act in pride and selfishness. Lord, you would have been righteous to crush us. You would have been righteous to judge us and destroy us and punish us. And yet in goodness and in grace, you sent your own son, Jesus, to take our punishment that we deserve, to to die for our sins, so that we could have forgiveness, so that we could have the eternal life that he deserved. Thank you, Lord God, for your infinite goodness to us. Thank you that you are always good to us. Thank you that the gift of your son is proof that you will always be only good to us now and forever. 
Father, that is the truth. We acknowledge that truth this morning. And yet, Father, we acknowledge that as we go throughout our days, as we interact with other people, as we interact with this world, it is so easy for us to begin to doubt your goodness. And even if we don't intellectually doubt it, we begin to live as if we don't believe it, Lord. Please, Father, work in us. Grow our faith, Father. Work in us so that we might believe more deeply in your goodness, so that we might trust you, so that we might really believe that absolutely everything that you have allowed into our lives is meant for our good, even the painful things, even the things that look so bad, you mean them for good. Help us, Lord, to learn to trust you completely, so completely that we can be patient, we can be humble, we can be selfless. I pray, Father, that you would make us willing to sacrifice our rights, to sacrifice our desires, to not be so quick to stand up for ourselves, to defend ourselves. Please, Lord, help us to let go of our rights and desires out of faith that you will always take care of us that you will always give us what we need, that you will always be good to us. I pray, Father, that we would be examples of patience, humility, and selflessness to this community and to this world. I pray that when they see us, they would see people who trust you in radical ways, who love you and are loved by you. I pray, Father, work in our lives this week so that we might walk in faith and patience. In the name of your Son, who makes it all possible, we pray these things. Amen. God bless you all this week.